Hello and welcome to Season 5 of the Bighorn Podcast. We will continue to bring you the interesting people and their extraordinary stories that come from the members of our community. We have talked over the last four years about the twists and turns that we all go through in our lives that bring us to Bighorn and the life we are able to share. I have been honored to be part of bringing to you these stories in the words, I have been honored to be part of bringing to you these stories in the words and feelings of the people who have lived these life experiences that can inspire, educate, and emotionally touch us in a very personal way. The people are the stars of this podcast, and their stories make up the fabric of our community and bring us closer together as we create an oral history of our club. My name is Marty Lockman, and today's episode is brought to you with the support of Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers, who have been a member of our community for 75 years. Bighorn Properties, the exclusive on-site real estate brokerage firm within Bighorn Golf Club. As the only true Bighorn experts, the Bighorn Properties team is uniquely positioned to represent you and your real estate needs with more than three decades of knowledge and experience. Why take a chance on one of your most valuable assets? Bighorn isn't their primary focus, it's their only focus. Call them today. After all, Bighorn is all they do. Back Nine Greens, who continue to supply to you the product that will improve your golf game and your home. They really make works of art. And Corliss Estate Wines, whose award-winning products are available for you in both the poorhouse and the steakhouse. All of these supporters of the Bighorn Podcast are not only commercially successful, they are all personally involved in our community. It is only possible to do these programs with their belief and support. We appreciate and hope you support them as they are supporting us. Today, our guest is Mike Agers, who has been a member of our community since 1999. Mike's story is varied in multiple career paths that he has been able to manage in a way that certainly gives him some great stories to share with us. Mike's story starts in Oakland, California. Mike, thanks for coming in today and let us get started on your journey. Good morning, Marty. Thanks for having me. A family of four, a great mom and dad, two nice sisters, uh, still very close, though my parents have passed now. And we grew up in a community that was just a little south of Oakland called San Leandro. And it was a really uh, significant bedroom community built in the 50s after the war. So our first family story really is, I believe my father uh, borrowed $80 against his car to make the down payment on our original family home, which I think cost about $2,500. So it was an interesting time to be there. And then it led me to probably one of the very things that affected my life significantly. So I went to a local public school in San Leandro. And I think I maybe showed a little aptitude, but I got picked to be in a reading class that was 
at our local school, they were trying to evaluate what reading program they were going to employ in the San Leandro public school system. So everybody else went to school at eight and I didn't go till 10. And there was about eight of us who kind of stayed from two to four in the afternoon. And they introduced and practiced on us, tested on us, labbed on us, these reading programs. And it resulted in something probably very unexpected, certainly to me. So by the time I got out of first grade, I could read a newspaper. I could read a book. I could understand it. I almost could discuss it with you. And it sounds impossible, but true on a very obviously fundamental level. So this was in the first grade. So now I go to my parents. We are a Catholic family and they wanted me to have a Catholic education. So they sent me to a Catholic school in San Leandro. And when I showed up, they handed out the first set of reading assignments to do. I remember it was called a think and do book. And so you take these pages and you read them and then you're supposed to answer them. And the pro, the lady who was teaching school, Mrs. Lambert says, you know, do the first six pages, take 20 minutes, I'll pick them up. So when she comes by my desk, I don't tear out my six pages. I hand her the book back. And it's got like 80 pages of assignments. It's done because <laughs> I can read the answers on the inside of the page. So this makes me an absolute awful classmate because I'm a disruptor. I'm not interested. I'm already done. So it resulted in something that really changed my life significantly. I got advanced a couple of grades. So now I was already young to be in school. And now I am two to three years younger than everybody in my class. So that affects you significantly. Academically, it was fine. Socially, <laughs> difficult. Didn't know that until I got to high school. And then athletically, you know, I wanted to play sports. I do like sports. And so you're competing against kids that are two and three years older. And I had to get real good real fast just to, to play. So it had a big effect on my life. Was there resentment on the part of the other kids? Was there any interaction that was detrimental at that time? Because kids can be pretty mean at that age. Not in the grammar school. And I think, you know, I showed up, <laughs> this happened very quickly. I, I showed up at the first grade, and I think within a month, my parents were done at the principal's office. They're not happy when they got that phone call. And then, of course, the sister says, well, we have a problem, and here's how we're going to try to fix it. But in high school, it was hard. You can imagine at prom time when the girls are 16, I am 13. <laughs> and and I, don't, I can't drive a car. I can't do anything. And if I started walking towards a young woman in high school, like near prom time, they would obviously turn and go the other way. I understand that now. <laughs> Didn't understand it then, but it was difficult socially. Did you feel accomplished, though, being able to do this? Did you, was there a sense of pride at all in, on your side of the equation? In the athletic part, I really was a good baseball player. And I played at an advanced level and I played in college and I had a little taste of the the show, so to speak. So I played really well and that kind of smoothed everything over. So I've always been athletically skilled. I tried very, very hard to become a baseball player professionally. Wasn't good enough, not big enough. You know, but my parents were so kindly unsophisticated, they didn't realize that you had to be six foot two and weigh 210 pounds and at 5'10 and 190, you know, this is unlikely to happen. So I, uh, the only thing I could do with a baseball is I could really throw it hard and fast. So they made me catcher when I was a kid, and then they retained me to a pitcher when I went to Santa Clara. The athletic thing was the, my entry into socialization with a peer group. If you can help win a game, 
you become, it doesn't matter what age you are, and it doesn't matter who you are, you have friends. And the camaraderie among that team, I'm sure, was able to give you some social interaction that you otherwise wouldn't have had if it wasn't for sports. I think so. So I got very, very involved in sports, and I became friends with obviously all the kids and stuff like that, and I did play well. That was the, the gateway. When you're growing up, in most of our cases, we had to go have a paper route. We had to go do something because if we wanted a new glove or if we wanted something, we had to kind of contribute to that process. Again, I'm very proud of my father and when he was, but when I was a kid, he was just a union electrician. He went to work at seven in the morning, came home at 4.30 in the afternoon did, and did hard labor, good work. That changed over time. And then my sisters experienced a different father than I had. But our resources were relatively limited to think like to learn how to play golf and, you know, someday become a country club member was not even close to being on the, the radar. Interesting enough, this kind of leads to one of the two careers. So I'm in high school and I got to make a couple of bucks to get your glove. So I picked up a whistle and I became a basketball referee for kids games in the CYO leagues in our league. And I kind of liked it. And I will even say I had some apparent aptitude towards it. I'm now refereeing. It was inter- It was fun because there would be three young men like me, maybe we're in eighth grade, we're doing the fourth grade kids. And they would send three of us to a gym and two guys would referee, one guy would keep score and we would rotate. And so you could sit down every other three hours or so. And I would be there from eight to five and I would referee seven or eight games in a day, you know, ride my bike all the way to the gym, ride my way bike back different than things are today. But it kind of started me on this path of, uh, of officiating it because I kind of liked it and I was getting recognized as being good at it. And again, that gave you an intro into sports, even though your size at the time wouldn't have allowed you to, to be involved in it. And you loved what you were doing. So tell me, was your dad a disciplinarian? How were things in that regard, the, the lessons learned at that time? He was a, a, a good man, and I had significant lessons were about three of them. One, I saw him later in life in business. If you shook his hand, you had a deal. And he absolutely, I don't think he ever got sued, never wanted to sue anybody. And I saw him make errors in the construction business where he was eventually an electrical contractor. And if they made an error, they didn't do the job right. And if he said you're, he would step up, fix it and do it. And he taught me that was really, really important. And then the second thing he taught me was about hard work and a job. I had my first job was at a dishwasher at a restaurant in Hayward. And my dad got me the job. And my dad was really clear. He says, you know, I'm supposed to start at 10 in the morning. He said, well, you make sure you're there by 930. You know, and this is a common story that I have heard on these podcasts from all of these guys. And I have the same story. So my dad was absolutely, what do you do? But why am I going to get there at 930? Sweep the floor do something you know he said polish something clean something and he says when and i'm supposed to get off at 4:30. Uh, he said well stay 20 more minutes and he said i don't even want to think about you getting in the car till five o'clock you know and do again do something you know sweep it after you deal empty the dishwasher go put the glasses back in the bar do something so it was really clear it was the family principles were you work nine hours for eight hours pay First one in, last one to leave is a common theme through all these podcasts. You're absolutely right. That good work ethic. Also, from what I understand, what you're saying now, too, is family and religion were a big part of your upbringing. 
Yes, we were a church-attending Catholic family, taught, and I accept the, the principles, and, and I still try to this day try to follow them. So it was important to our family to be there. The one exception was my sister, uh, was the second one. She decided, uh, she met a young man when she was like 17 or 18, and she decided to attend BYU to follow him there. And I thought my father was going to absolutely have a heart attack and fall over. Everything worked out fine. And, you know, it's interesting, my sister significantly embraced many of the life principles from the B BYU experience. Family home evening, some of the things that are like that. She practices them to this day. They're great things. So it was, uh, it's all fine. Yeah, good values are good values, regardless of where they come from. So you go through high school. You've already gotten into refereeing. Uh, how do you go to Santa Clara? How does that all work out? Well, so I was on a, an athletic academic program to play baseball. And, you know, again, at my age, that was difficult to achieve. And I had some success at Santa Clara. I had, a, I became a pitcher and I would win some games and had a bad experience at USC with Dave Kingman one day. That was not necessarily fun. That ball's still traveling. I think it's someplace over Arizona now. Played baseball, had a great time. And that's, so that I believe one of the things that sports did, again, it was social acceptance, was also time management. So I am at also now I've gone to Santa Clara and I need a couple of bucks to hang around. How old are you when you go to Santa Clara? 18. So I'm, I'm, I need a couple of bucks. I can drive now. That's good news. And uh, so I get into the local high school officiating conference and all that. And in Santa Clara, from Palo Alto to Gilroy, all of the high schools have to be serviced by this county agency. Well, they need 300 referees, you know, on Tuesdays and Fridays, there's so many schools, and I want to do it, and I, I think I can. So I became kind of, I got accepted, and I got close to the assignment office because I have free time. I'm a, going to college. After I go to practice and I do my baseball, I can go. So they actually would give me like one game a week, and then they would call me. Tuesday, Wednesday, I would go to the payphone. It would ring at two thirty. They'd say, "Okay." Somebody got sick, can't make it. He's got a problem at home. So 4.30, you go here. 6 o'clock, you go here. 8 o'clock, you go there. You know, I'd do three games. I had no idea where I was going. And I'm driving all around Santa Clara Valley. But I'm refereeing 15, 16 games a week. I'm getting better every time I do it. And the, it's, a, it's a craft that's kind of taught in the old medieval way of a, an apprentice and a mentor. And the guys are trying to help me do better and learn how to officiate well. So finally, one night, the miracle happens, and the guy doesn't show up for the varsity game, and it's the biggest game in the county forever and ever, and, and you know, two undefeated Titans are 17-0, and 0, and here we go, and a guy doesn't make the game. And I've done the JV game, and I'm still there. They, I don't leave until they make sure they have two for the next game. So the guy doesn't show, and he says, well, Mike, you know, Let's go, and out we do it. And I did well. I just I refereed the game. It, it never did seem to shake me up too much. And now, and now the coaches are happy. The guy that was my partner was a, an executive type uh, management of the officials association. And I go from now. I go from the JV games to now. I'm a varsity guy, and I'm still in college. I'm only four years older, three years older than the player, but I'm doing it. Do you had mentors during that time? Are there are there guys that kind of take you under your wing? Because again, you're this young kid and not everybody's going to accept you. And unless you have somebody on your side, I would think credibility becomes an issue because of your age. So I do have some 
mentors. And then I did because I got into the management of the, they were the leaders of the association. Now I've got quote friends in high places. I'm doing okay. And everybody's trying to teach me how to get better and do it. And in particular, there was one referee who had been in the NBA and he lived in San Jose. His name was Chuck Camuso. And he kind of took a liking to me. You know, we would go out teach. And of course, one of the principles that Chuck taught me, this is a first basketball uh, secret. He would always say, well, whoever blows the whistle on the first foul has to buy the beer after the game. Well, I must go at least eight or nine games. And some guy's got a, you know, a hatchet mark across his room. He's bleeding and Chuck won't blow his whistle. So I could, Jesus, Chuck must be, it must, his eyes must be closed. I blow the whistle, fix the foul, buy the beer. And so that takes me at least nine or 10 games to figure out that I'm being had, you know. So it, it's a, it's a wonderful profession with nice people who are really into back to values, fairness. Officiating is about fairness, and there are rules, and they're supposed to apply them, and I get that. But eventually, at the end of the day, was it done fairly, and everybody got a fair approach. If you wanted to get my attention on the court, then at some point, the right words to approach me were, hey, we're being taken advantage of, or this isn't fair, fill in the sentence. I'd listen to that in a minute, because that's exactly what I don't want to have happen. How much did you get paid per game when you started when you were driving all over California. Yeah, you know, it, like, it was like $42 for a JV game and a $65 for a varsity game. So I'm making maybe $100, maybe a little more than 100 bucks four days a week. I'm in the chips at Santa Clara. I am the richest guy in the <laughs> in, at uh, Swig Hall. You know, I've got all the money. And doing something you really like, and you viewed it not just as a job, as I understand it, but you were talking about a craft, about learning a craft when you were doing this. Yeah, it's, you, you want to do well at whatever you do, radio podcasting for you, baseball playing for you, you know, and so this, I'm trying to do this right and get it done correctly. So I got mentored and, and did it. And I just became, I got a reputation for being good at it. So by the time I graduated from Santa Clara, now I'm a, that's four years, I'm 20, I have refereed the state, local, county championship game in high school because I am, my opinion, <laughs> one of the better referees. By then, I got picked to do the game. Now, let's not gloss over the fact that you actually went to class when you were in Santa Clara. And, and how did, what did you study? What was your major? How, how did that all work into this life that you now have? So I'm an early riser and always have been. And so I would take my classes back to the time management. Santa Clara was, I had a class at eight, nine, 10, and 11. So I was all done at noon with four classes a day. I had some aptitude past them. I'm in a business school, not any particular emphasis. So I graduated with a bachelor in science of commerce, I think it was. So I'm all set. And so I've now got my work done. Now I go to baseball practice at one and we were out there till four. Played, obviously, we played 50, 60 games during the, the season. You know, you're back at the dorm at 8.30 or 9 at night, and I'm, you know, two hours of homework, 11, 11.30, watch Johnny Carson, see you tomorrow. So one of the back to the principles, I think I've mentioned in the past to some people here, I did something when I was 14 or 15. I took a pledge for the Catholic community not to have any alcohol, and I kept it until I was 21. Now, that's unusual to go through college and not have any drink, and I didn't. And at the end, actually, the guys were rooting for me. You know, they're 20, 21 years old. They're going, you can do it. And I did. So I wasn't much of a 
party guy. Uh, never, not even now, but I, I was just kind of did my job. There was only so many hours. I mean, I'm working a basketball schedule. I'm going to college. I'm playing baseball. And that was enough, you know, just to get done it by 11, 1130 at night, get hit the sack and do it tomorrow. Now you graduate from Santa Clara. And although you were making good money for a college student as a referee, my sense is that you needed to, to make more than that as you moved on. I did. So I started at Arthur Anderson, just like Deloitte and, and Pricewaterhouse and KPMG. It was a, what a wonderful place. Uh, I'm positive. My story there is two. One, it, when you got, they would interview on campus. And if you kind of passed the campus test, they would bring you to the office where you would then meet some new staffers, some managers. And eventually at the end, you would meet a partner where they would might offer you a job. So I got asked to come to San Francisco and do that. So when I went up and did it, did my best job, they hand you 20 bucks to pay for the parking at St. Mary's Garage in San Francisco. Back to my father. You know, my dad said, you know, you should be glad you have an opportunity to, you know, interview for a job. So I hand the 20 bucks back to the guy. And I said, no, this is my privilege. I really appreciate coming in here today and having a chance to work at Arthur Anderson would be just wonderful. I would really like to have that job. And the guy later told me when they hired me, he goes, you're the only person in 10 years to turn down the parking stipend. And I actually do think that and the fact that the Vietnam War was going on and they just needed bodies who weren't going to be drafted. Uh, that's how I got the job. Gave them back the money and wasn't going to Vietnam. But you, you stand out. You made an impression. There's a bunch of people asking for this job or wanting this job. And you got to make this decision when it's a tie game, the guy that gives back to $20 win, <laughs> wins. <laughs> that might have, I think that's what did it. Yeah. <laughs> Plus, I was still a very good softball player. For the, <laughs> They sent me home the very first day I go to Arthur Anderson. I go, I report to work at eight o'clock in San Francisco. We're studying the audit procedures, the AOP book. And then some guy comes down the hall and he says, Hey Mike, can you play in a game tonight? I go, well, yeah. But you know what he said, well, you have your stuff with you? I go, well, I didn't know there was a game. It's my first day at Arthur Anderson. He goes, well, here, he says, why don't you take my car, go home, get your stuff and come back to the game. It was important enough to Arthur Anderson. I don't have to go do the, the auditing stuff. I need to go get my spikes and a, and a glove. But when you're playing uh, softball uh, in an accountant's league and you have a, maybe a little bit of skill, you're a little different than the rest of the accountants. M MVP. <laughs> yeah, I kind of showed up and it was the, you know, I can remember somebody, uh, you know, we've all played slow pitch softball. Somebody hit a ball out to center field where I was. And I, again, when the best skill I had is I could throw. And so that this guy's running third, I just lace one from center field on a dead ass line, six feet off the ground, a missile to the catcher who's a tax accountant from, <laughs> from Fresno. And I almost killed him. <laughs> he couldn't catch it. And I just, you know, you forget who you're playing with. So the, that was an incident. We had to call the ambulance and stuff <laughs> like that. But they did know who the hell I was by the next day when I go to the office. And right? that was just your first day. Yeah, that was actually a month later. But, you know, but yeah. Yeah, the word's getting around. We got this center field guy who can throw. That's fantastic. And now you're working at Arthur Anderson. You're enjoying the job, or is it a means to an end? No, no, it's my job, and I really appreciate it, and it's great. Uh, I think 
many people who are in the professional services business, there's 2,080 hours in a, in a workable year if you're in a law firm or a, an accountant, you know, based on dad's principles of hard work, you know, and they used to have a little list inside the Xerox room about how many hours you worked this week and what you were cumulative to date. And then we have 60 new guys that have just started. And so I came in second. I worked 3,800 hours in the first year. Do you think the firm likes that? They love that. It's all billable time to clients. And so I wasn't any smarter than anybody, probably certainly not as smart as many, but I absolutely outworked them. And as I've heard Frank Jules and others on this thing say, you know, I'm, I'm in there at six in the morning and I am leaving at seven at night. And there were many a times I actually had, uh, I was the accounting representative for Anderson to Levi Strauss and eventually the San Francisco Giants. And so they were doing the due diligence to purchase the Giants. So I would work all day on the Levi Strauss account, six o'clock or something like that, go get a bite at dinner and report to the Candlestick Park at, from eight to midnight while they were doing the secret due diligence on the potential purchase. That's a lot of hours. These values that your family had and, we, and you were taught. When you interview people today or in your business, do you see these values still or is this a problem as far as moving forward? It doesn't seem to be as inbred as it is in me and, and others I've heard on your podcast. But my bias was, so I would eventually, I became somebody who went to do the college interviews and, and, and hire accountants for Ernst & Young in that case. The firm needs, my opinion, 15 or 20% of the guys who are absolute technical whizzes, and you really need some very, very smart people. Then there's some more smart guys coming along, and then there's some other guys who have got a B or B plus in accounting while they were in school, but they worked 30 hours a week. That's the guy that I wanted. It, maybe it's my template, but that way guy, I know that guy has a work ethic and he's smart enough that if he'll work. That's the guy I want. And I need 10 guys who are 4.0 and they'll sit there. They're in the back behind the door. They're doing all the technical memos, but the guys are, have got some personality and are willing to work harder out in, out in the field, beating clients. And there's still those people. Absolutely. Great. That's always good for us to hear because we do hear some horror stories sometimes about the work ethic isn't as great as it once was. But I still believe that there are young people that, that have those values. I particularly think in the big law, you know, professional service firms, the big four accounting firms, at the big consulting firms, Bain and McKinsey, those kind of people gravitate to that in the investment banking world where a lot of hours are required. But if you'll put them in and be mentored, you'll be, end up really smart and very skilled. And now at the same time, are you still refereeing? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so well, I'm at Arthur Anderson, and so I think you couldn't, didn't have double duty on many jobs all the time. But I, so I would go to work at you know, 6.37 in the morning, and then I would probably knock it off at four and get in the car and drive to a, at that time now, I'm now doing division two and junior college games and that kind of thing. I'm not quite in the division one thing. At the same time, the coach at Santa Clara, his name was Carol Williams, a very nice man. He had called the West Coast Conference at the time. Now that's where Gonzaga and USF and they play. He had called the office and it said, hey, we got a graduate and he's really pretty good at this officiating stuff. Can you put him on staff? And at that time, even Kareem and 
when he played at UCLA, did not play var three years. He only played three years of varsity basketball. They had to play in the freshman team. So the freshman team plays at five o'clock, four thirty. No matter what, we're getting off the court when the game's you know about six fifteen. We're out because the big guys are coming. Right? He weasels me into the West Coast Conference and they give me five freshman games. You know, harmless at five o'clock in the afternoon. And as custom is appropriate, they pair me with a really good older mentor referee. So my first game is uh, I'm 21, I think, and I have Stanford at USF freshman game. So I'm there at five o'clock, do it, have a nice partner, still a friend of mine. And was he better than me? Absolutely. But was he only maybe 10% better than me? Probably. So I was close, but not as good. And the guy who ran at that time, the pack eight is in the stands. He came to see the Stanford team play the two games. So he comes down and he says, you know, who the hell are you? <laughs> so I'm going, Mike. And he says, you know, how long have you been officiating? Well, you know, five or six years in the high school and, and now this. And he, and I said, this is my first Division One freshman game. And he says, would you like to be in the Pac-8? Sure. <laughs> you know, where, where's that? <laughs> so the next year, sure enough, letter shows up. I start going to meetings. And now I have Cal and Stanford and all those kind of guys in the freshman games. So that had continued for about two or three or four years. And then I had, again, displayed some skill. And then they eventually turn you on to a varsity game where they have, you know, little sisters of the poor play in UCLA. And you're with the best referee that Pac-8 has at that time. And the score is 121 to 54. You couldn't mess it up if you tried. And, but, but he, you, you get out there and there's 10,000 people there and it's fast and it's at the rim and it's different than the, this is not your local high school game anymore. So you got to get accustomed to that. It takes a little bit of time. And there, and I think our craft and our leadership is understanding of that. You, if you went out and did a really bad job, they'd still give you another shot or two at it before it was, before they say, look, you just don't have it. So I do that and uh, away I go and then I'll be doggone. I'm refereeing a couple of five, six, ten, you know, pack eight, I guess now, or maybe or pack ten, maybe then. And the NBA guy comes down to the locker room, Sai, what's your name? You know, and I'm not terrific or I'm not any bit, but I'm as good as the other guys, but I'm only 24 years old. So they go, geez, if we invest in this guy, we, we got something. That's what that was the trick. If I'd been 39, I'd have just been one of many. And was it intimidating? And are you thinking, oh my goodness, I got to pinch myself. This is going pretty quick because even though it's a couple of years, you're now in the pros or you have an opportunity to be in the pros. I do. So I refereed at my first NBA playoff game in 1977. I was 26 years old and I have the Portland Trail Blazers with Walton and Maurice Lucas and uh, Torzik and those guys, they were fast. I remember I had the first game I had was with Chicago Bulls. They had uh, Artis Gilmore, yeah, and Storm and Norman Van Leer. And it was just Lionel Hollins. They're all playing in these games. I was above my skill level, but I didn't know it. You know, I was probably just too young and naive uh, not to, uh, to recognize it. But again, I had a game, I recall, that where my partner just didn't, he just folded. He just couldn't do it. It was beyond his skill level. So I just kind of kept blowing the whistle and getting better and better and better. So the NBA kind of took notice and sent me to summer leagues. And, you know, at that time they would hire a referee for a part-time contract. 
And so though I'm trying to do a part-time NBA schedule and be an, and be an audit manager at, at Arthur Anderson and I'm balancing them, them and I'm still refereeing a few college games. I'm trying to get all this done. So the, now I'm up at four and, and of course it's, the travel wasn't like it is today that airlines would go at late at night, 12 and one o'clock, there would be flights from San Francisco to LA and there's no TSA. So you could do the OJ Simpson through the airport at night. So the, I would go to work at four thirty or five. I'd work until 12 or one or two literally jump on the plane, run down to Los Angeles, do the game, fly back, get to bed about two, and I would be back at the office three, four hours later. So I did that for, I guess I did that for three or four years. And then when I finally, I actually left Arthur Anderson and gave notice to be an NBA basketball referee. And then, you know, all the guys are leaving to become CFO here, you know, high tech executive here. I think I'm the only guy who ever left to be a basketball referee. Now, when you are now refereeing, and this is a passion of yours now, being a referee, is it? I like it. I, I do. I've always liked it. Yeah. And, and passion is not the word I want to use. I just, it was an interest and I was good. You know what? It was self esteem and I was good at it. And it, it sounds maybe out of inappropriate to think that about yourself, but I, you don't get at 26 years old, you're not refereeing NBA playoff games because you're, because you, they just picked you off the street. So I, I knew I was pretty good at it. And, uh, and so I, I kind of wanted to pursue it, but it was a very difficult family life circumstance because that is one of these days we'll talk about NBA basketball and college basketball, but it's 28, 29 days on a road a month. You know, you're only home three or four days. I, I didn't know that. But of course, I'm only part time. But when you know, now that we're looking at what it could be, it was something that I didn't want to do full time. I wanted to do it part time. And they said, well, we don't want any more part time. It was time for you to step up to be full time or you can't be here. So I went back to the colleges. You're out there with these stars, people that you know because you follow the game and you know the game. Do you ever get lost in out that you're out there and and these guys are just some of your idols or they or not idols maybe, but people that you've uh, seen and admire uh, to, ke to keep your concentration, to be in the game? Is that a difficult thing? You know, I'm going to say by professional training, and the answer is no, because it, uh, it sounds people probably will not believe what I'm now going to say. An officiating job, there's you know guys in red uniforms and there's guys in white uniforms. There are competitive matchups that you watch. You follow your principles. You referee outside to in. You always stay a foot left of the ball or right of the ball as it comes down the court, so you can referee to inside. You make position adjustments to get an open look. You stay connected to the play. We have our own set of I'll use the word glossary and set of terms. And they're just people who are in competitive matchups that I am always trying to judge and evaluate fairly with two comments. One, referees are always watching the defenders. That's where the action comes from and where the fouls are made, violations occur. So I remember talking to some of the staff guys, friends, you know, you'd watch Michael Jordan steal the ball, run past half court, do a you know, flying dunk at the other end. Boy, that must be exciting to watch Michael do that. No, 
I was watching the guy that was 10 feet behind him, closing in on him. That's where the action is. So I'm watching the defender. I see out of the corner of my eye, but I'm, I'm watching the game. But what, the, what I'm there to do is make sure he's not fouled and get. And it's only coming from the guy behind him. So I would say most referees did not always see all these great plays that you see on ESPN. They're doing something a little bit different by training by rule, and it's the right thing to do because that's what you're there to do, not watch Michael Jordan play. You're to make sure that he doesn't get fouled, hurt, those kind of things. That's great. So that's pulling back the curtain. We talked about this, you and I, about that's the kind of inside stuff that only the person that does that job understands. The person that's in the stands, that's just not something they see. No. Uh, if people and listeners in our in our community, I, I can tell you that the effort that's made to have the officiating be correct and accurate is intense. The, I would, in a, even at the college level, there's at least 90 minutes a week of video training that goes on during the season where the conference clips plays and they give you a test that you have to fill out in, on the online today with the web. And so there'll be 10 plays and you got to call them as a foul, not a foul, violation, not a violation. And then they'll show you six plays in a row. What they think are here are the similar plays, all six. These two are called incorrectly. These four are called correctly. We want everybody to get on the same page of, you know, of the last four. That happens every week. And in addition, as I, you know that I, still evaluate some games for the leagues and the conferences there's a program and so you and an evaluator at home independently watching the game and every time the whistle blows those are calls right those calls are either cc called correct or ci called incorrect and there's also what we call no calls when you see a defender block a shot and if he was not fouled that would be a no call correct or if he was fouled and he didn't blow the whistle that's a no call incorrect so you get two scores at the end of the night, and you should be in the 94 to 96 range, 97 be really good. For when you blow the whistle, you should be that accurate. And for the ones that you don't blow the whistle, one reason you didn't do it is you may not have been sure. So that maybe be a 92, 91. And I would, if, so if you end up at 96, 92, you are one really good referee. You're on a team in the midst of a game. Would you ever tell the guy you're working with, hey, you missed this one, or this. we got to be better about this. Or at halftime, you say, geez, we had a tough time this half. We need to do better. So are you doing those sorts of critiques among yourselves during a game? Absolutely. And you, you, next time you go to a game and there's a timeout, watch at least probably one of the referees will reach into his back pocket, take a little piece of white paper, a little piece of note paper, and a, and a golf pencil. And he'll write down 714 because that's when the incident that's in his mind needs to be evaluated. And he'll write down, you know, let's check that out. And he come in at halftime when we have access to the replay and we'll look at it. And and so th there's they're always trying to find out the calls that they need to confirm. And sometimes the players will say, you know, Jimmy, you missed that. Maybe I did. I'll check at halftime. I'll let you know. And, and then you come back out and you go, you were right. We missed it. You know, sorry. Or I'll say, hey, we got it. You know, and so back off. We, we, we got another one correct. <laughs> based on these critiques, based on these uh, evaluations, what's the turnover in referees on a yearly basis? In the, in the NBA, it's probably three or four. The way it works, that's a union. 
So that so they have rules, and I th- I'm not familiar maybe with they are today, but the concept is you they get a ranking, and I think there's currently about 90 referees in the NBA. So let's say you're in the top, I'll say from 65 to 90. I don't know that those are the numbers. They can be probably terminated, but it would even your first year if you end up at 80, that's good. You, you've you've done it, so you're not at any risk. But if you're in that last third, you could probably be terminated. And if your score goes down, you, you'll get some counseling, you'll get some training, you'll get a you'll get a mentor. They, some of the retired officials will show up at your game. They'll look at the video with you, try to improve your work. In addition to this concept where you have the calls right or wrong, you, there's a pull down menu, and you, there's about I think there's nine reasons why you missed it. Pick one, and so you feel it if. 75% of the time you don't call the areas that you didn't get an open look. Well, let's start working on getting open looks and you'll improve and we'll be happy. You'll be happy. You'll keep your job. But at some point, if there's a 20% decrease in your ratings, if you went from, I'll say 60 to 88, you'd be at risk. It doesn't happen very often, but it does. The union rules govern it there. And in college, what happens is your schedule kind of gets decreased. You know, you had 30 games last year and you didn't do so well. So we're going to take you down to 20. And if you do poorly that year, they might take you to 12. And at that point, you'll probably quit. Back to your life at the time, you decide the NBA isn't, you know, the demands are so great that that probably isn't what you want to do. It's not going to be healthy for my family. family life and everything. So now you have quit the accounting company you were working for. How does that move forward in your accounting part of your life? So I started my own firm. So now I have uh, my own firm in Walnut Creek. And then now that I own it and we have a nice business going, I can referee as much as I want or, and I can, well, I fit it in. And the nice thing is about the college schedules in my days is that in, uh, around Labor Day, September 15th, they would give you your schedule for the entire season. So I knew where I was going to be on February 23rd. So you asked me, can I meet, you know, can you meet to me? You talked about, you know, your tax return. And I'd say, well, geez, I can't do it on the 23rd, but I, I can the 22nd. So that was extremely helpful to me to be scheduled out like that. So I just kind of did that. And of course, today you can be anywhere with the internet and computer. And so I would, it's a kind of a job where you, when you referee last night, you need to get to the next place quickly because it's winter travel. So then you would get, and then I would do my counting work in the hotel from 10 to 4.30, calls, that kind of thing, and then meet the crew and head off to the next game. And the majority of the refereeing then is the Pac-12? For me, it was Pac-12 mostly, then the Big 12 WCC. And of course, the the only way you really know you're doing well is eventually you get to go to the NCAA tournament. And that's always been something that's special to even the officials. So this might interest everybody. If you go to the selection show on Sunday, you don't know who's playing in the tournament or where until Sunday, about in Pacific time, about four o'clock. Well, referees don't know where they're going either. And you don't even know you're in the, oh, you get a notice now, 48 hours in an email, you're going to go. But then eventually somebody calls you, you know, I can remember I used to go to Buffalo all the time. So this guy would call and he'd say, you know, Mike, you've been selected. Yeah, yeah, I know. And he said, well, you'll need to be in Buffalo on Thursday and Saturday. Okay. So there's a travel agency in Indianapolis where the NCAA is. They get everybody, all the teams, all the people, the hangers, honors, the band, all that stuff, go through a travel agency, including 96 officials who need to be at four game sites by Thursday. 
So you go on Wednesday. So you're there on Wednesday night. Got to get there. And then on Thursday morning, there's a committee from the NCAA that meets for breakfast with the officials. And then you're told what game you have. You know, I don't even know what game I have until I get there. So the, f the family story there is my, I had a wonderful daughter who lived in New York and she had a dating life that was, uh, she needed some, she wanted some help, I guess is the right word. So Harvard had finally made the tournament one year. And I think it had been 20 years since they did it. So you can imagine every Harvard man in New York is excited about this. She goes, oh, Dad, I hope you get the Harvard game. I said, Jenny, I have no control over this. So I'll be doggone. I get assigned to the site where she, where Harvard's playing. And I go to breakfast and I get the Harvard game. So it's exactly what she needs. So I, I can call. They allow me to call my family to tell you what game I have. So I call her and she's in New York. And the game's at five o'clock or something in Eastern time. So she's, she goes down to the bar and of course the game's on and the, the, every Harvard guy in town is in the business is there. And, oh yeah, that's my dad. So she ended up with, I don't know, seven or eight phone numbers that night and, and her eternal gratitude to dad. You got your own accounting firm. You now can make your own schedule. Officiating, you still do, as you said, grading and stuff like that. You're still involved. How many years did you do this? I did uh, 41 years on the court. It's also, it just sounds like a big commitment, but remember it's seasonal. It starts in November and it's over in March. So, you know, but for 41 years, it was a, you know, a double duty job. The job at the, at the level where I got at the end, where I was one of the senior guys, I've been out now, I guess, four years. And it's like Wednesday nights are in Kansas. You can talk to both Mr. McPherson and Mr. Hubbard about games that I saw in Kansas and Kansas State. So I go to Kansas on Wednesday night. You get up first thing in the morning, fly to Phoenix, not Tucson, even though the game's in Tucson at U of A because you can't get out of Tucson well the next door. So you gotta fly to Phoenix, drive two hours down to Tucson, referee the game, drive two hours back. Then I'll say maybe Friday, there's usually no college games on Friday. So you fly to maybe Houston in my case for Texas A&M at noon on Saturday. So now you do that game and it's two, two thirty. Hopefully it doesn't go over time because you have a five thirty flight from Houston to Portland. Cause I have, you, I have Oregon at two o'clock on Sunday afternoon. And that's the same thing, gotta drive from Portland to Eugene. One of the issues in college basketball is the campuses are not in metropolitan centers. It's a lot of driving from airports to the game. And we always stay at the airport. And then maybe if this game's over on Sunday, then maybe Monday night I might go to Spokane and referee Gonzaga, come home, wash the shirts, you know, change your socks and do it again. And just did that week after week after week for 40 years. After over 40 years of doing this, how many games did you miss? No, I never missed a game. Never. 2,165 games. Wow. They're all in a spreadsheet. Baby, got to do your tax return. You're still overseeing and involved in your accounting business during yes. this particular time. You have also been involved in some other businesses along the way. You want to touch on any of those things that you've become involved in? I would recommend to anybody who wants to you know, participate in business to start in accounting. It's the common language. So I, I became close to my clients. Uh, I, I particularly have one client. I've been an equity participant and an owner in a company called Hornblower Yachts, now called City Experiences. We started with two boats in Berkeley, and, uh, and it's now got 5,000 employees and private equity bought it. And, and so I've seen all of that and became, but I guess, in my opinion, my accounting skills developed to where I was a valuation 
specialist and I helped value the giants and other businesses. I've probably done a thousand valuation reports and been involved in 300 court cases. And, and I got a reputation with the judges that I was maybe technically skilled and more importantly, not an advocate. Lawyers are there to advocate for their clients. My, you know, we're taught and valuation principles are that you're there to value, you know, maybe advocate for your opinion, but not to help somebody win or lose a case. And I, and I got a reputation among the judges that I was perhaps like that. So I got kept getting more and more cases. And then they became more and more, I got on a board of directors and a transaction advisor. So now I like many people here, I've been on many deals and I'm pretty good at corporate governance and merger and acquisition agreements and valuation. And when that's occurred, it's kind of, all, I'm still on a board of directors of two companies, but what it's done for me as I retired a little bit here is it's, it led me to a company called JAMS. It's a judicial arbitration mediation service. So I'm a JAMS panelist and it, you know, my bias is if you have a business dispute about a failed merger agreement, a definition, a purchase price adjustment, a working capital concept, and rep and warranty insurance is the big one today. You're not you know, taking that to a judge who was a, certainly a fine lawyer and a, most likely a very wonderful jurist. He may or may not know the technical principles of EBITDA and how accounting works. So if you really want to get a good result, my bias is you should go see finance and accounting guys for a arbitrator because they can push the pencil. Theoretically, you can't fool me, but I can push the pencil better than the lawyers. And then if there's not any big legal principles here, what are we, it's really more about finance and accounting. So I currently work on probably two to five cases a month where I'm arbitrating some dispute about a failed merger agreement for jams. And I really like it. It it's, um, keeps you in the game. Like, like it's a little, my fingers barely in basketball and my, maybe I have two fingers in business dispute resolution, which I actually really like very much. This whole thing that you started, fairness, that common thread goes through everything that you've done. It's the same job, whether I'm an arbitrator, mediator, or a guy with a black and white shirt, same guy. Another couple of questions on the refereeing side of it. You do this for over 40 years. You take it seriously because this means a lot. People's careers are at stake. People, you know, There's a lot of things that you have control over. We've read over time about people that have gotten involved in, very rarely, but have gotten involved in the, the darker side of gambling or things like this. You guys, it has to upset you when one of your cohorts, one of your people that, because it reflects on all of you, what's your feeling when something like this happens? It just has to piss you off. It makes you sick. So. First, the concept, uh, as I sit here today, I can absolutely tell anybody listening, I have never been on anything in my life, and I would never, ever go anywhere near a sports book. And, and by agreement, that conference wants that, the NCAA wants that, it should be that way. I have no problem with that, NBA too. The, I know specifically the NBA referee who they identified, he, he, had a, he went to a racetrack during the summer. The, not supposed to do that and he got a little bit behind i guess with some bookie and he would i guess the bookie was being monitored by uh law enforcement and they heard him on the 
conversations where there was an offer apparently made to the referee if they could forgive the debt, if he would, I'll use the word, help them out. Now, to the best of my knowledge, and I'm peripheral on this, nobody made a, ever made a call wrong, fixed the game. None of that has ever happened, even in the NBA incident. Officials, you know, we all bring a little bit of judgment to this thing. Some are a little, little stricter on when they blow the whistle. Some are a little looser. I was kind of a let them play type guy. So the way it worked, as I understand it, in the official concept for the NBA, he knew that three referees were going to be at the Laker game, and they were the the tough guy calls. Well, the, what will happen is that the over will occur more likely because more fouls are called, the game stops, points are put on the board, and the over could happen. So he would just say, well, you know, the, the tough guy crews are in Chicago, Charlotte, and L.A. tonight. And, and, or he'd say, you know, Mike and Marty are in, in Sacramento, and you, we all know they don't never blow their whistle, so take the under. Well, he, as I understand it, he never said take the over, take the under. He would just he would identify crews that were put together that night, and then I think that as I understand it, the the the, the bad guys, you know, did betting based on some guidance that was given. That's what would happen, and even that is awful there's yeah. no doubt about it you give people enough information that's power in the gambling business yeah. that's for sure but the point i would think i want to defend the profession is i've never and to this moment i'm not aware of somebody who blew the whistle to make the point spread change or to have a game win or lose or any of that kind of stuff that just doesn't happen um a couple of other stuff i know that you got a million stories and and uh, we were with some people the other day and and uh, you were sharing some of those and it's fascinating what goes on again behind the the curtain a couple of questions from me and then any other stories that you'd want to share what in college basketball is the toughest arena to work well you know, it's crowd influenced, and so in the out in the West, Arizona's got always has a full house. There is no professional sports team in Tucson. It's just U of A, so they have a lot of adults there. They actually have probably fewer students than most, so they're it's you know that's like a real intense uh, effort. And particularly, they were so good for so long, and then eventually, I remember when Stanford had some really good teams, and so it's Stanford against uh, Arizona and. You throw the ball up and everybody's standing up. Already. I've had, I've been there where people have stood for two and a half hours just screaming, you know, at the result and trying to cheer on. It's fun to some extent. It's it, You're in it. it. I mentioned March Madness when people go, geez, I'm going to go watch the NCAA tournament. I go, well, you know, good. I'm in it. You know, you know <laughs> so uh, that it feels good to be in that and the intense crucible of it. Arizona won University of Oregon. They used to have a before Matt court that uh, Nike put together. They used to have Mac court and that place was old and it had rafters and it was built differently and people could hang over the rim i was i've seen you know straw effigies with my name on it up there and it was very very intense in the old building there and then probably the um, supplement i do went i have to admit even i was affected when i went to the university of kansas the first time N not 
Intensity, intensity, absolutely. But that is really a, a basketball shrine. If you have a chance, I have never been to Duke. I'd love to have refereed a game at Duke. But to go to Kansas and experience what that is, it really is different than everybody else. It's kind of like going to what the old course and playing golf at St. Andrews. Do you feel the adrenaline like a player might feel an adrenaline when you go into that kind of an atmosphere? I think you need to charge up a little bit and, uh, and especially, uh, you know, to match the effort and intensity level for a while. Now, this sounds trite, I guess, but you know, after this can be, you know, game number 66, and uh, this is my fourth night in four games and four nights, and I don't know, your attention can wander and that kind of thing, even as the game can be intense. So I know I made a bad call one night that was awful for me and my family, but which I'll also say when you get to like the last two or three or four minutes of the game, they call timeout. You, you know, I'll always get my three guys t together and say, hey, look, look, we've had a really good game here so far. We're really, we're probably in the high and set 90s here. We got this. Now, do not let your guard down. In fact, if anything, get up 20% more. Get you know, Pay attention here because we could lose it all by messing this up in the last two and a half minutes. The referees, you know, want to charge up for the last couple of minutes. You can recover from a bad call I might make in the first quarter, but it's hard to fix it if I mess up with two minutes and 10 seconds to go or something. You've seen some great basketball players over time that you've been doing these games. Is there any moments that stand out to you as far as uh, uh, players that you've seen? And I'd like to know, who were the guys that gave you the most trouble? And then who were the guys that you said, geez, these guys, no matter what, they were gentlemen, but they were great ball players. Well, at college level, I saw Kevin Durant play at Texas a lot. I had a lot of his games, a lot of James Harden games at uh, Arizona State. Great, great players. You could just tell they're going to be professionals. Kevin Durant could shoot like nobody I had ever seen in a, in a long time. Uh, and all the UCLA players with Kevin Love, I think I had every time Kevin Love and OJ Mayo played each other, I think they played three times. I had all three games. So it was uh, fun to watch these really good players. And I know that Westbrook, the current guy, and all the Farmer and all those guys at UCLA were great. Arizona had some wonderful players and guys at Oregon, Brooks and Luke Ridenauer and all those guys. But the college game rotates out. The players come and go. And today, two years maybe is all they're there. So the college game is emphasized for relationships and success in officiating is really more tied to the coaches. They have an influence on who officiates a the game. They should. They evaluate and send in. And I think if they, if I had a really difficult time with a coach and we kind of got into it and I can't get over it or he can't get over it or something, most likely it'd be them. And then they might not get a, a Cal game next year because you and the coach got into it. So instead of having five Cal games, you might have two. And, you, and the two would be games that they're very likely to win by a lot of points. So then, you know, time passes and then they mean the next year you're back to four and you have the Cal Stanford game and you, everything's forgiven and forgotten. So that in college that the players you see is not what I recall so much is about the, the fan bases being so rabid for their school and the relationships are really more with the coaches because I only see the players like two years. I might see, I probably saw Kevin Durant six times in two years or whatever it was. And again, as you've already mentioned, 
you're not really paying a lot of attention. There's certainly a skill level that you recognize, but you have a job to do. You're refereeing the game. You're not there as a fan to watch a player. However, the coach is going to be there every year. That's right. And the coach is not going to like everything that you do. What were the worst coaches? <laughs> what were the ones that were most challenging, not the worst, the most challenging? Well, some of them are very demanding because, well, first of all, by nature, they're competitive. That's how they got the job. They were probably good players themselves or in the in the sport. And, and they get the job. They need to win 20, 22 games, get into the NCAA tournament every couple of years. And they're trying to lead a, you know, a group of uh, 18 to 21 year old young adults who are not always, you know, thinking straight. It's a hell of a job. So. You need to understand that and be empathetic. It's not it's not an easy job to be a college basketball coach. And now some guy from San Francisco shows up and says, it's not your ball, it's the other guy's ball. And they go crazy. And I, you know, I get that. So you have to kind of calm that part down. The difficulties, uh, Mike Montgomery and I used to get into it now and then because it was my problem. I had one thing that would really bother me and that would be a coach would say gee many christmas you know we've got six vowels and they've only got one well you know sometimes you're playing a man kamikaze man-to-man -man defense and the other guy's playing a soft zone or sometimes it just is six to one it just is and that would actually that was the only thing you could really say to me that would get me to stop and be upset and i think you know mike and i had probably been together for 20 years. I mean, I absolutely respect him. Never saw any coach land. If he had a six or seven point lead with two and a half minutes to go, he'd land that game on this aircraft carrier every time. But he kind of got on me once or twice, you know, about the six to one thing. And so I, you know, come on. So I, one night I stopped and I right in front of him, I go, Mike, I says, are you inferring that I'm cheating? And I'd be careful how you answer. I had never done that to him. He was probably put up a little bit off from my attitude and, and actions. He doesn't really say too much. The play is coming and he yells at me, we gotta, gotta go referee the game. I go, I'm not leaving, you know, until I get an answer. So we kind of go through this for about 12 seconds or so and then the game continues. So he's made his point, I've made my point. So I guess it's maybe a month later, we're at the Staples Center, which is an unfamiliar arena to me and to, and to them too. I'll be doggone it. Mike, his fouls are six to one. And I look up, he's got it dead ass wrong. He, he doesn't understand the scoreboard. He's only got one and they have, the other guys have got six. So I kind of say, hey, genius, you know, <laughs> what's the problem? You've only got one, you know, and he looks at me, he goes, oh, shit. There's things like that that happen and they're kind of fun. And of course, I had Bobby Knight at Texas Tech and I had him in the NCAA tournament, too. So he had he comes with a reputation. So my story there is I think on Thursday, Texas Tech, no, they're playing Oklahoma when I have it. So Oklahoma plays on Thursday and they have Blake Griffin, good player. And I think that the t opponent that night for Oklahoma decided to triple team and, you know, Blake Griffin wasn't going to score a whole bunch of points and he was, they're going to shut him down. And the other four guards just go crazy. And I think it was probably Texas. So Texas uh, loses to Oklahoma because the four guards shoot the lights out. Blake Griffin doesn't score very many, but Tech, but an Oklahoma beats Texas. So I, now it's Saturday and Oklahoma's moved over to Texas Tech and I have the game. Bobby's there. 
So he decides to do just the opposite. He guards the heck out of the other guys, and he just puts some kind of Marty guarding Blake Griffin. He scores 43 points, 27 rebounds, 18 assists. You know, he goes off the charts. So the ball goes out of bounds with about, I don't know, a minute and a half to go right over by Bob's chair. And I kind of go, hey, you know, it's a good idea. The single guard and Blake Griffith, great idea, genius, you know. And, you know, of course, what he had to say, I can't repeat. But, you know, those kind of things happen on the court. I'm just, you know, tickling them because I can. And, he, of course, he tickles me when he can. And, those, and that's, in my opinion, that's how you succeed. If you, if you can take and give a little bit of that. I was not a tough guy. We had several referees, a couple of them, just really tough guys. If you said something to them, they give them a tech and you throw you out of the game. That wasn't my approach. I rather kind of... Through this whole thing and through your life, there's been some real challenges. Talk about family for me. Well, I have two wonderful twin daughters who had just very accomplished and uh, great values, back to that word. And, uh, and one of them still is the San Carlos, and she has a challenged uh, daughter and a young son and a wonderful husband, and they're just doing terrific. And then I had another, because the, the, they're twins, I had another daughter who lived in New York City. She, too, was accomplished, and she's in the Oregon Hall of Fame. She was one down from being the CEO at a big uh, ad agency in New York. She owned her own place. So she finally had a, felt some need to, to have a child, and she kind of she found a guy. And, you know, 18, 20 months later, she decided to have a to, to decide to, it was time to have the, to have the child. So she went down and into our just awful display and tragic event. She gave birth to the baby. And about two hours later, she had a pulmonary embolism and passed. And, it, and you know, I know here in the community, there's a, the Silbermans, the Andersons, the DeStefanos, and now, now Jimmy and Sida. It, it is a life-changing event that I just, it's hard to tell people what it's like. I actually prefer to talk about it than not and, and talk about Jenny. I miss her. So it's a, something you just have to get through. You just got to get there. You know, one day at a time, it gets further in, in the background a little bit, but it, it's been hard, no doubt about it. This has been part of your journey. Just is. I, again, I appreciate you telling us this part. And this has an effect, too, I'm sure, even to this day, on you. It does. And, and the thing that I feel is a little different about our awful circumstance is in this case, you know, she gave birth to a baby. So, you know, when there was a big effort, our I sold all the real estate and everything that we had in Danville. And we moved to San Carlos to be near the baby, help raise the baby. You know, so it's kind of like Jenny left a, <laughs> a present, you know, behind, but a challenge. It's not easy. And a son-in-law I hardly knew. Yeah, the, you know, so we have to, we raised the kid together as best that we could for the last, uh, well, I guess it was four years. And then about a year ago, uh, the son-in-law decided to take the grandson to back to New Jersey where he's from. So he's doing fine, and to some extent, maybe better in some circumstances, but it's not easy. And, it, and in this instance, I've always felt that I'm maybe 20% off kilter where I'd like to be true north. And that can get fixed over time, I think, with effort. In our case, the big the problem is with the, her twin sister. It, it's, 
you know, she's just upside down. She's just south, not north, and hasn't been able to get back to north. And I'm not sure that she'll ever will. She lost her twin sister. And so that circumstance in the, our case with the twin and the baby makes it, in my opinion, a little bit different. It, it, it's awful for everyone. And it doesn't go, go away, but I don't want it to go away. I want to remember Jenny and, and you know, think about her and all that kind of thing. Uh, you get involved in the post-incident events and and that kept me really busy for six or seven months but all it really did is defer you know the, the to address it and think about it and i know jimmy and Sider are going through it now and it's not easy and it, you know the, i've tried very very hard to when something like that happens now to get involved i had we had some of the nicest things happen to our family too wait we had a friend she just gone on an airplane and flew to new york to help us and all she wanted to do was wash the windows, get you a sandwich, tie your shoes, whatever you wanted. And I, I, I've now, I've, interestingly, I had a friend experience this recently. And then the first thing I did was just go. And so there are some things that, you know, I have opinions, at least anyway, about how to handle and support a circumstance like this. I would think support is a big thing. How does faith, because faith has always played a big part in your life, how does faith play a part in this? Well, it, it challenges it, I'm sure, but I never lost it, and I have not. Um, um, I, you know, I still, I don't. It's just, you know, a life circumstance that had to happen, and you need to, you know, now in my opinion, the faith can help you accept it, and and it, it's just one of the supporting tools. You know, the one young woman came and helped us in New York. Your faith, you know, you go to church and you know, get in it and work at it and think about it, and it. You know, hopefully it gives you some comfort and the tools to deal with it. Well, again, Michael, I, I appreciate you touching on this, as painful as it may be, touching on this part of your life, because it is part of your story for sure. And uh, hopefully to others, it you're by you talking to it, it also opens up their thoughts about people either that they know have gone through this or that they might have gone through this themselves. So I really appreciate that. There are some questions as we kind of come to a, an end of this that I'd like to ask you because uh, they're asked to everybody. And I think that they're always interesting answers as we compare these answers, although many of them are very similar as many of the other life lessons that you've learned have been. Who are the people that have had the greatest influence on your life? Well, certainly my my father with the values and the work ethic. I think that sounds very similar to any of the podcasts. And, and that's clearly number one. And on the, you know, even in the accounting world or wherever you've done your, I've met a, a wonderful two executives that have been extremely kind to me and, and helped, you know, provide equity opportunities and be able to work. So they had a big influence on capital formation in my life, which is a, appreciated. So that was significant. And then of course I have a, you know, again, back to the wonderful girls. I just really, really, uh, like my family and, and a wonderful wife of 46 years, we were together just, just terrific people. So, that's all been great and the comfort that they provided a in the circumstance and then b you know during those five or six months i was working two jobs and getting three hours sleep you can't do that without a support system and it was provided in space by our family what brought you to bighorn how did this come about what i mean you've been here a while now so what brought you here 
Well, I, I was actually down playing in a golf tournament with a bunch of NBA basketball referees at Ironwood. And, and I had been thinking about trying to slow down the pace a little bit at, at the office and maybe even decline my basketball schedule. And wouldn't it be nice to be in a nice weather circumstance to be able to fly from here? So I'm kind of thinking about it and we were looking at Ironwood and we looked over the fence and I saw these houses and it, I really liked the architecture and the way the modern houses are here. That's something that I like a lot. So we kind of went over to the real estate office and about six hours later, I owned a, a 300 Matate. I think I'm the original and still only owner up there. So uh, like that very much. I really like the community, uh, ex the golf experience, the people. Like you, Marty, when you sit down to lunch here and I remember there was the, that awful nuclear incident in Japan. And I don't know, I think it was, you know, John and others were here with, well, John Deere's going to do this and Caterpillar's going to do that. And Van Skilling thought this and all that. And there's people here who just are on these incidents because their companies are involved or they're, or they're tied to it or they know about it. I just find meal here extremely interesting with such smart people. It never sat down with some with a group of people that I haven't learned something. As long as I can just listen, I'm always going to come away better for the experience. Yep, that's the way it is here. What is your management philosophy, and, and importantly, what qualities do you look for in people that work with you? Well, I'm, a, I'm an integrity fairness guy. You can tell from the jobs. So uh, always do the right thing. And if it causes loss, financial loss, that's the way it is. And uh, I think I'm a little more long-term than I am uh, short-term. Uh, I don't think I would be a really good publicly traded company CEO trying to make next quarter's earnings. Because if it got to where, hey, if you stuff the pipeline and we can make a quarter objective and the stock symbol will tick up a little bit, that would be hard for me to do. And so I don't want to do any channel stuffing. And uh, I just want it to all work out in the long term and right. So long term horizon, do the right thing. With everything that you've accomplished, and as I said at the outset, you know, you're handling more than one career. You're handling family. You're handling the basketball. You're handling the accounting side of your life. With all you've accomplished, what drives you today? I still like intellectual stimulation. Back to our conversations with our other members, but, or today the jobs that I'm taking with this mediation and arbitration. I absolutely love getting two briefs on a on a topic that's difficult, and then you get to meet really smart people who are arguing, you know, technical issues on a case, and how do you interface with them? calm them down, you know, back to officiating concepts, you know, get to an arbitration mediation position that's fun. So the intellectual stimulation of that is what I seek. What advice would you give the 20-year-old Mike Eggers? I probably would have had more fun in college than I did. I just, all I did was work and play baseball. And so I guess if that I would probably have a little bit more fun then. And I don't think I had really understood the effect of being younger and the social effect of all that until I was probably 30 or 35. It finally kind of came clear to me that I had, a, you know, wants and needs that were probably affected by the advancement in school when I was young. And I didn't know that when I was 20. It, would, it was, took me longer. Looking back on that, Mike, what advice would you give someone of that age 
about moving forward two years in your in your schooling because of the impact that you feel that you have experienced? I, I would absolutely say do it because I think it's more important to be intellectually challenged and keep going and be smart and, and get all that. It's just you got to remember, I would tell a parent, there's going to be social significances to that. And again, God bless my mom and dad. I just thought that they, they, they thought, well, I got a smart kid on my hand. Let's advance them. And were they thinking about what the junior prom when they when I'm in the third grade? Of, of course not. And nor should they, I guess. But that's going to happen. And so that's something that, you know, maybe they should have. I don't know. But yes, it, but it, before it, warned. It, 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 there you go. And, and, and I guess, again, there aren't those kind of parents. Those are, wasn't that kind of times. But they could have perhaps, you know, counseled you through that or coached you through some success at that time. But that was the, the way it was. No hard feelings. Parents were f wonderful. But it, you, you just kind of take on a difficult circumstance, socialization, kind of on your own, two years younger than every three years younger than everybody. That's it's a tough road. Huge at that point. It's huge in those days. That's right. And without any guidance, per se. Michael, I know that when we first talked about this, um, you were apprehensive about wanting to do this a little bit. And that's not new to this podcast, by the way. That happens quite often. And your concern was, well, it's not going to be interesting enough. I think by the fact that we could go on for another hour talking about this is proof positive that you have experiences and stories and life lessons to share. And I really appreciate you sitting down with me today and doing this. And I hope it wasn't as uncomfortable as you originally thought it might be. But you've been terrific. You're always honest. You're always, you know, you're always have integrity and you're always upfront about stuff. But it really opened up and I really appreciate that. So you're thank welcome. you again for coming in. Thanks, Marty. Okay. Mike, thanks for joining me today. And your story has been unique and entertaining. And thanks again to Leeds & Son Fine Jewelers, Bighorn Properties, Back Nine Greens, and Corliss Estate Wines for their support. And we look forward to bringing to you more great people and their extraordinary stories in the near future.